0: You're listening to episode five of Mikeston Alexander's Hydrogen Miniseries, produced in collaboration with the Australian Hydrogen Forum. I'm Elise Gatt, Senior Associate, and on this episode, you're going to hear from Alex McIntosh from Arena and Justin Nash from BP. A key question they're pondering is, what can be done to make hydrogen commercially viable? Where is investment needed to scale up production? Should hydrogen production or hydrogen demand come first? And how is government working with industry to promote the hydrogen economy? Now, to kick off our conversation about hydrogen commercialisation, here's Alex. So my
1: name is Alex McIntosh, so I'm an investment director at the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, or ARENA, and my role at ARENA is to lead all our investment work across the renewable hydrogen portfolio.
2: Fantastic. And could you give us a bit of an introduction to your work at ARENA, particularly thinking about the hydrogen space and ARENA's involvement with the growing hydrogen industry? Yeah, sure.
1: So ARENA was established almost a decade ago now, and our purpose is really to increase the uptake of renewable energy and the shift to net zero emissions for Australia. Since 2018, we've been investing in hydrogen, and hydrogen's been a key sort of investment priority for us. And over that time, we've now committed over $190 million um, to various scales of hydrogen projects. Um, sort of back in 2018 when we first started investing it was really looking at sort of early stage studies around you know social license or what could hydrogen mean for Australia or what could your know, hydrogen economy mean in terms of both GDP but also in terms of jobs and infrastructure and what that could look like we then sort of started investing in a few more like small scale projects so looking at one megawatt electrolyzer deployments with people like Atco, there's kind of microgrid project or hydrogen hub project that they have in Jandakot and then over time that has grown in scale so most recently we committed over $100 million to three 10 megawatt projects so they're based around Australia they're looking at various uh, end uses such as gas blending but also with one of them is with On which will look at blending renewable hydrogen into their ammonia uh, fertilizer plant So is actually creating renewable ammonia that can be used to decarbonize the fertilizer supply chain so I guess a lot of things kind of happening um, and I guess looking forward what we're now looking at is trying to continue that scale up of deployment so you know we know that 310-megawatt projects is great, but ideally you're going to need you know, gigawatt-scale electrolyzers to get to that export scale. And so trying to now see the pipeline of projects that will look at you know, feasibility and feed of those kind of export-scale projects.
0: Great. And um, so why is there so much discussion and talk about hydrogen at the moment? Why is it important?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. It definitely is sort of like the sexy renewable energy at the moment. It gets like a lot of interest. And any kind of event we have with hydrogen, there's always... You know the best turnout that you could have but equally i think that it does get hype for a valid reason because i mean when you look at producing hydrogen purely from renewable energy it creates entirely emissions free fuel and we know that you know the world does need to decarbonize and i think everyone's kind of accepted that we're living in you know a future that needs to be net zero and electrification will get us sort of part of the way there but it won't get us all the way there and there will always be sectors that are harder to abate or where you can't electrify Um, And there will also be countries where they actually can't produce enough energy for their own needs and so that's when things like hydrogen can play a role in looking at us then moving from exporting fossil fuels to then kind of shipping sunshine, as people like to say, uh, to then help people like Japan, Korea or maybe even Germany decarbonise themselves.
0: Great. And are there specific hydrogen uses that ARENA's more focused on than, than others? So not necessarily. So
1: we've done a lot of work across various end uses. So things from looking at like remote area power systems. So we funded a project with Horizon Power in Denham. So looking at how they can actually have a town there um, run entirely on renewable energy and using hydrogen as sort of the storage or, or backup there, rather than relying on carbon intensive diesel fuel. We've looked at things like, as I was saying, gas blending and how you can actually decarbonise the gas network in Australia. We've also looked at ammonia production. So ammonia is used a lot in fertilisers, but also for explosives in the mining industry in Australia. So looking at how you can decarbonise that. And then the other end use as well is looking at transport, which we're seeing actually have more momentum probably in the last 12 months, and I think that will continue. So funding projects like the Viva New Energy Service Station down in Geelong, which will be sort of one of the biggest um, hydrogen refuelling stations once it's built, and actually bringing lots of kind of industry players to help them kind of test and actually you know uptake one or two hydrogen vehicles and learn from them and then sort of roll them out into their broader fleet.
2: I'm glad you raised the Geelong line because I live just near <laughs> <Right>. where that <laughs> to where that refueling is going to go which takes me to another question about jobs and hydrogen's potential role in the Australian economy. Yeah. Geelong has been a centre of manufacturing for many years in Australia but that role has declined um, more recently. Do you think hydrogen ha- presents an opportunity for a a new role to bring manufacturing back to Australia or new jobs for Australians?
1: Yeah, I think definitely new jobs. I mean, I think there'll probably be roles in manufacturing, um, but definitely as as the kind of industry grows, there's definitely a way that there can be new jobs that kind of get spawned and started. I think the Viva project is a good example of that. We actually got to go down to the launch of it and it was just amazing to see, I guess, the the amount of people that actually just get employed and work at that refinery, which is near where this project will be, obviously that's an industry that's existed for many years and has made that area or created employment for a lot of people in that local area but even now obviously recognizing that you know that refinery still has a very valid role and will probably for a number of decades but going forward you know they're looking at ways in which they can transition their business and also transition their workforce to things like this like hydrogen or other kind of renewable technologies.
0: So commercially how does hydrogen stack up
1: right now? You bring it back to the sort of first principles I guess for every kilogram of hydrogen you produce or every unit of hydrogen that you produce, that 90% of your costs come down to two things. One is sort of the capEx so you're buying an electrolyzer, you balance a plant, any kind of infrastructure you need for your end use, so that's obviously a big cost that you'll have. Then the second is electricity. So for every unit you're then producing of that hydrogen, you need uh, essentially very low cost renewable energy to help power that process. And what we're seeing in the market, which is quite interesting, is that even if you know, you can give someone a completely free project. So if you pay for every single piece of infrastructure that you could possibly need, there's still an ongoing operating loss if you can't get cheap power. And so at the moment with the electrolyzer efficiency where it kind of is in the moment, you actually need to be paying for power at about $30 a megawatt hour to be at that kind of H2 under two um, point, which is obviously the point we see at, you know, $2 a kilo is roughly when most end uses become viable at the moment in the market you're probably more paying like $50 a megawatt hour for power and so even just on a power standard alone even without any kind of capex or any other water costs or anything else involved that's still at $3 a kilo. So you've still got sort of a gap there that you need to fill. But again, the commerciality comes back to different end uses. So if we're looking at something like remote area power, where you're kind of competing against a very expensive incumbent diesel fuel that's probably getting trucked in the long distance and is very expensive, end uses like that are definitely closer to being commercial than say an end use where like gas blending, for example, we're competing with a very low cost kind of natural gas price. The converse side to that though is on gas blending, whilst it's not not commercial at the moment, Infrastructure is actually there and capable. So, we know that you can blend up to about 10% in the gas network without any sort of technical issues. And so, while that use case is sort of still evolving and is on that pathway to commercialization, it's actually one of the easier kind of end use integrations because that infrastructure allows for that at the moment.
2: Getting that cost of hydrogen down and using technology to help get that cost of producing hydrogen down is obviously a, a pretty key piece of the puzzle, and that's been a topic already discussed at the Australian Hydrogen Forum here and it's exciting to hear from a few Australian technology providers who are working on new technology to get that um, production cost down. How does ARENA involve itself with those companies and their development and innovation in, in new technology in this space?
1: Yeah, so our role is always to try and provide the minimum amount of grant funding to allow a project to proceed. So essentially bridging that gap in commerciality. So for example, in transport at the moment, it's really looking at sort of a gap in total cost of ownership. So looking at if you're going to take up a hydrogen truck, you know, what does that gap or commercial gap look like when you're comparing it to an incumbent sort of diesel diesel truck? And we know at the moment that those vehicles are sort of two to three times more expensive on a capex basis. Then you've obviously got an ongoing operating cost as well, which potentially could be cheaper. Like we've seen with EVs, obviously operating costs for EVs can potentially be cheaper than sort of ICE vehicles but you've still got to be able to produce that hydrogen um, at a certain level to make that work. And so our role is always working with you know, various parts of industries to try and help bridge that gap from a funding gap perspective. But the other key role we have is whilst we're providing grant funding, our real channel on investment is knowledge sharing. And so we'll always try to make people share as much knowledge and data as they can with industry to then allow people to learn and uptake things in a more quicker fashion. And so whilst it's working with those partners, like you're saying, to help them learn and grow, and make sure as much data can be shared as possible.
0: And so what sort of t- projects will increase hydrogen's commercial viability? Is it a collaboration between governments and industry or is it need to be driven by industry more? Um, what would you say about that? Yes,
1: yeah, so I think at this stage of the hydrogen industry, it's absolutely a collaboration from both the private and government sector or the private and public sector. So we're seeing that across all our projects. So we will always look to have a private Party ideally match funding um, from the sector. That's not always the case in an industry like hydrogen, where it is so nascent and we're sort of at those earlier stages <laughs> of the journey. But certainly, it's got to be a collaboration, and we see that across all our projects. So even looking at you know some of the earlier feasibility stuff we've funded, with like for example the Stanwell project in Zones they're looking at. 300 megawatt kind of project to look at export scale to Japan but that has collaboration from I guess Stanwell, ourselves but then also a very large Japanese consortium. Having that international party there help look at both like the technical and the commercial feasibility and make sure every part of that kind of project it's all being developed for, for the actual off-taker and the export market in mind.
2: Can I take you back to an earlier point you mentioned that there's so many Wonderful small to medium projects going on around the country, and obviously arenas involved in in so many of them in in a variety of ways. You said the next step is to now build larger projects and and scale up. How do you think we can make that happen, and what's Arena's role in 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 making that scale or helping enable that scale up in the industry?
1: Yeah. So it's a really important point because, as I was saying, you know, we know that. We're kind of at the stage where we've got sort of three 10-megawatt projects on the go. But we know that in order to actually get to this you know, export economy, you're going to need gigawatt-scale electrolysers. And so we're very focused on continuing that pipeline of projects. And we know that you're probably going to have to fund you know, quite a large pipeline of projects to even get you know, some kind of scale, because there will always be reasons why projects fall over or there will be reasons why commercially things don't stack up, and so we're really focused now on continuing that next wave of projects, so while still delivering on the projects we do have and getting them constructed and the lessons learnt, now funding projects like that Stanwell um, project up in Gladstone, so doing early stage feasibility with that export Japanese consortium there to look at how a project like that can get up, as well as funding people like the Port of Newcastle um, and Macquarie project, um, which is looking at, again. you can do maybe an initially like a 40 megawatt scale electrolyzer, so scaling up again but also then having a more broader scaled up you know one gigawatt uh, version of that project in mind so starting off with you know funding sort of feasibility studies and moving to sort of front end engineering and design stages and then also keeping in mind though if we're actually going to do these deployment projects they're probably still going to need a big chunk of government concessional funding at that stage as well so looking at what are the mechanisms we can have in place to make sure that people actually have confidence But even if they're building a project now at that sort of earlier stage, there's the right government mechanisms in place to allow a deployment project to also proceed.
2: Another key element of collaboration, not just within Australia, is also looking at how the industry can collaborate with what's happening internationally. There's obviously a lot of countries that are involving themselves in the development of the hydrogen industry. How can Australia work with uh, other countries And what sort of partnerships and and collaboration efforts are already underway?
1: Yeah, so it's something that ARENA, but also the broader sort of government is focused on. So we've seen lots of MOUs being executed with the likes of German government, for example. So there's now an Australian-Germany hydrogen accord, which is looking at ways in which both the Australian and German government and industry can work together to help scale up a supply chain from both Australia to Germany. And so one of the key initiatives under that we've just launched is the Highgate Initiative, which is a funding round uh, in collaboration with both ARENA. So ARENA will be the Australian delivery partner um, and then a German organisation as well, delivering the funding on the, the German government. And so really what we're looking at there is trying to fund projects that now start to establish those relationships between both Australian and German counterparties. And so you can actually start to build that pipeline of projects. So ultimately, if Germany does want to start to import uh, hydrogen from Australia, Australia, we've got those cross-country collaborations starting and we're seeing that as well with people like uh, Japan and Korea also making noise about looking to try and you know, execute uh, various agreements or also try to have various sort of funding bodies that then can fund cross-collaboration projects as well.
3: My name's Justin Nash. I'm a senior manager for a BP in a group called City and Corporate Integrated Solutions. Why is BP interested in hydrogen? So James, it really starts with BP's ambition to become a net zero company by 2050 or sooner and to help the world get there. Uh, First and foremost, we are a consumer of hydrogen today and we have been for decades in, in our refineries. So for BP to get to net zero, we need to displace this hydrogen we consume from fossil sources with green hydrogen. But then also for the world to get to net zero, we do require other zero carbon sources of energy. Yes, we need to electrify and that's hugely important, but we believe as BP that in the final energy mix by 2050, hydrogen will make up between nine and 22% in net zero scenarios. Um, And hydrogen will be in these sectors that are really difficult and hard to abate. You know, places like industrial feedstock, where it's used today for ammonia, fertilizers, chemicals, mineral processing, uh, heavy duty transport. We think it'll have a role in there, whether you're off road, doing long distance haulage, uh, aviation, and then in in shipping, um, alternate fuels to the fossil products today, may include things like ammonia or green methanol.
4: You mentioned that BP has a fairly long history in hydrogen through your refineries, and you mentioned a few uses there that you're particularly interested in. What sort of projects and work are you already doing in this green hydrogen space?
3: Yeah, so we've got a a large variety, uh, Jack, some on the supply side that we're trying to to start, like Project Jerry here in Western Australia, and then others uh, like Quinana, where we actually have a, a demand for the hydrogen alongside where we want to uh, produce it. And that actually happens um, globally with a number of our key refinery sites. So um, if I just list off a couple uh, in Spain, we have the Castillon refinery, which is looking at a green hydrogen source for the refining. And when you're in a, in a region um, like Castellon, which is, which is in the Valencia region of Spain, there's also then the opportunity to look at how do you decarbonize that industrial area uh, so we're looking to ultimately scale that up to about 115 megawatts to then help other industries decarbonise. In the Netherlands, we've got a project called uh, H250 in Rotterdam, which is alongside our and in our sort of Rotterdam refinery area. Uh, that's again another big industrial cluster. We'll use that green hydrogen to decarbonise our own processing of of fuels, uh, but also then to to decarbonise others. At the Australian Hydrogen Forum.
4: Justin, you likened hydrogen to an analogy about chicken, eggs, and duck curves. Would you mind explaining that uh, for our listeners?
3: Yeah, sure, James. It's, um, I'm sure having been around hydrogen a while, you you guys have heard it a lot as well, the story of the chicken and the egg, which comes first. You know, do you have the hydrogen production? Do you have the hydrogen demand? How do you match those two together so you actually get this, this new hydrogen economy started? Uh, so for us, it, it, it really starts at Kwinana uh, where we have had a refinery for 65 years, really difficult decision to close that uh, last year. It's now an import terminal. But as we look to the future and to decarbonize uh, the transport sector, uh, we are putting forward a plan to put in a renewable fuels plant, which will mean we produce uh, sustainable fuels, renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel that can then help reduce emissions by 80 to 90% with the fossil equivalent. The beauty of these fuels are they drop drop-in; you use them in existing engines, existing planes, existing infrastructure. So they're seen as a really important medium term step to, to decarbonize. Now with that processing to make a renewable fuel, we're going to import um, and, and aggregate locally waste oil feedstock. Uh, So that's used cooking oil, uh, that's tallow from from abattoirs, and then we bring that in together. It goes through a pre-processing step. It it actually generates its own biogas, which is really nice for the refining process. Um, We run that through. We do the step of refining the the cooking oil and the, the waste oils into the renewable fuel. But because it needs hydrogen through that process to help blend and create the final product, it introduces the opportunity for us to consider green hydrogen source, as well as the biogas source from the feedstock. And that's when you go, oh, wow, we've got we've got a real synergy here. Um, And that's what we're seeing play out in other refineries across the globe, the globe for us. And when we then put that together, we sort of say, oh, well, we've got a certain amount of demand for green hydrogen. We are in the Kunana industrial area, which is a world class industrial precinct with 170 product exchanges between the industrial cluster there, who else needs to decarbonise? Who else can come on board, help us aggregate the scale to then get the economies of scale so we can have the most competitive hydrogen price ultimately to make this commercial? And then when we look at where quinana is positioned, we look at the challenge of the duck curve, um, which for your listeners there, I'm sure most Australians have heard of it with just this massive uptake of, I think it's now 16 gigawatts of rooftop solar across Australia. Western Australia and Perth region has a couple of gigawatts. We've got this massive reduction in demand during the day because you've got so much solar generation. Uh, that creates grid stability problems. So that's where we think an electrolyzer, so a load of you know hundreds of megawatts can be helpful to the grid to provide support. Um, and that can be another part of the value that uh, we're trying to deliver for the project and to help make it commercial. The electrolyzer is, is generally considered about half a battery. So it's trying to find that, that value stream from that service along with the green hydrogen production to really make it a commercial reality. Justin,
4: do you think there's a, a, a role for hydrogen to play in, in the aviation sector?
3: Yes, we, we do, James. I think it's, um, there, there's multiple ways that, that the hydrogen could be utilised in aviation. You could have it as the fuel source itself. You could have it then with ammonia, or you could have it also providing a, what they call an e-fuel, um, which is where you use the green hydrogen combined with captured CO2 or captured carbon monoxide could be off an existing plant, it could actually be ultimately from direct air capture. You combine that with the green hydrogen and you have what's called an electro fuel or e-fuel. So that then gives you ultimately a drop in fuel that can then be used in existing engines today. It's just very expensive to do it right now, both on the cost of green hydrogen, but also on on the cost of, of that step to process carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide back, breaking it back down to give you the hydrocarbon as the end product. Uh, So we see it playing multiple roles um, in the future. I think it's still unclear which one is going to be the preferred um, pathway. You know, you hear hear Boeing and and Airbus looking at at hydrogen as a direct fuel source. We know that electrification is only going to get you so far in aviation just due to the battery weight. So it probably will play a, a big role in, in the longer distance uh, aviation routes. So the key then is
4: getting that cost down. What's the best way for the industry to help get the, the, the price and the cost of hydrogen production down to a level where it
3: becomes feasible? James, I, I think it comes down to scaling. You know, we really have very, a very small proportion of, of electrolysis in action today, I think I saw some numbers that um, we only added from the IEA 70 megawatts in 2020 globally for green hydrogen production, electrolysis, and in total we only have about 300 megawatts today globally on the planet. So we need we need to get to gigawatt scale here, hundreds of gigawatts, and and get there in a fairly rapid time frame. So we actually just need to start building these projects out coming down the cost curve like we saw with solar with batteries with wind um, is a key one but to get there we do need uh, the government and the regulators to help by incentivizing it whether that be with you know first starting point does the country have a hydrogen strategy yes that's really key do they have a net zero target yes that means that hydrogen is absolutely going to be required to get to net zero um you know we're encouraged by what we see from both federal and state governments with hydrogen hubs programs feasibility funding but it really is now the time for the government to start addressing demand and helping demand with firm targets mandates uh, blending actually committing to start blending rather than just having an aspirational target Um, and then there are other things that we see work quite well in europe contracts for difference auctions and then basic infrastructure should be now hydrogen or CCUS ready. You know we should not be building anything that can't be converted. Otherwise, we're going to lock in some unabated, uh, you know, fossil consumption.
4: You spoke earlier, Justin, about the various hydrogen-related projects that BP is working on across the world, and at the Australian Hydrogen Forum, we heard from a number of industry leaders who suggested that there's an opportunity, not just domestically, but for Australia to have a a big export um, or there's a a big export opportunity for hydrogen from Australia. Uh, But obviously there's a number of countries around the world who are competing for that position. Mm. Do you think uh, Australia, based on BP's international experience, Australia is in a good position to
3: be a hydrogen superpower across the world? Absolutely, James. You know, it it for us it it really starts with the renewable resource. Um, and Australia, with its fifty eight million petajoules annually of solar radiation that we receive, that's ten times global annual demand of energy. Uh, we've got great wind. You know, we've got a massive coastline. Uh, we've got wind that is complementary to solar in many locations, so you can get a much higher capacity factor. We should have in australia the lowest levelized cost of electricity which then feeds the lowest levelized cost of hydrogen production and we're situated in a geography that has existing industries and existing relationships of decades of supply to you know asian customers so i think we've got the foundations here to have a a terrific export role in the future for, for green hydrogen, green ammonia, whatever we choose to, to export. Um, and we've got and we've got fantastic mineral resources as well that are all looking to decarbonize. They're all part of the energy transition and desperately needed. So I'm hugely optimistic for Australia and think we can play a, a, a major role in, in decarbonising um, globally and supporting others, other major countries decarbonise too.
4: It's interesting, you know, kind of BP as a multinational has an opportunity to have a sort of a global influence on this and to sort of when you talk about helping other countries decarbonise, do you kind of see almost the leadership role for BP in, in leading, you know, lots of the different countries that
3: you work in down the hydrogen pathway but more broadly the decarbonisation pathway? Yes, we do, Jack. It's uh, something we um, have committed to. Uh, it's something that's that's really important to our employees, our stakeholders, our shareholders, and um, and ultimately the, the governments and places where we work that we are seen as as helpful. Now, not everyone's starting from the same place. I mean, we, we do need to recognise there's still almost you know almost a billion people that don't have reliable electricity on the planet. So for them, getting reliable, cost-effective electricity and energy is first and foremost. Uh, But if we can do that in a way where it's where it's cleaner as well, you know, you're you're then providing affordable, clean, reliable electricity uh, to help them not only prosper economically, but also to decarbonize. Uh, But it does depend on on the on the country and and the starting place. We we still have uh, a a sizable proportion of, of fossil production of oil and gas. We see that being really important. Uh, during this transition, you know a cargo of LNG heats hundred thousand homes for a year. You know it's 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 a massive scale of 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 energy that we shift around the globe to help people um, both you know, be mobile, have heat and and power their uh, their economies and and their lives.
0: A big thank you to Alex and Justin for joining us. Keep tabs on your podcast feeds for our next episode featuring Jim Snow from Oakley Greenwood. Jim's work modelling different energy scenarios means that he has a well-informed view of hydrogen's role within the broader energy transition. A big thanks to our partner, the Australian Hydrogen Forum, for helping us bring this series to life. There's going to be plenty more hydrogen power discussion during Australian Energy Week coming up in Sydney in June. For tickets, head to energyweek.com.au.